Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the letter of the Hebrews. And chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. And as we uh, read God's word, let me remind us that, um, that God's word is his sufficient and authoritative voice for his church for all time. So let us pay careful attention. Chapter 5, starting in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. On Christmas night, the year 1776, Johann Rahl, the colonel of the German troops who were encamped in Trenton, they sat in a home in leisure to uh, take shelter from the severe weather that was happening back in New Jersey that year. This regiment of German soldiers were hired by the British uh, to help defuse the American uh, colonies who had rebelled against British rule. Because of the severe weather, Rawl and his men and the holiday were enjoying uh, just an evening indoors. While they were inside, a nearby farmer who was loyal to the British crown, observed the movements of the American revolutionaries, moving into position led by General Washington. The farmer then crafted and sent a message to warn Rahl and his regiment of the impending attack. When Rahl received the note later in the evening, he did not care to hear what the note said, but just stuck it in his pocket to read later. While they were enjoying that leisure in that warm house, Washington moved his troops, ferried across the Delaware River through the night, and at 8 a.m. the next morning launched a coordinated attack, catching the German regiment by surprise. Johann Rao was wounded in the battle and died the next day. When they found his body, they found a note in his pocket, warning him of the attack to come. General Rao did not 
care to hear what this warning said. He took no care, and it cost him significantly. The warning went unheard. The author of the letter of Hebrews has a deep concern for his hearers, and he is deeply concerned to warn them of impending danger. And as he has been writing to them and walking through several warnings for them, he fears that they will not take care to hear the warning, that they will not be careful to listen to the warnings that he is giving them. And so our text this morning comes across as this strong language designed to grab their attention. He wants to grab their attention, not to bring them discouragement, not so that they would hang their heads, but rather so that they would examine their hearts and their minds to spur them on to a diligent pursuit of maturity. See, the author wants to draw their attention to the temptation that hinders the church from growing in faith. The pursuit of maturity has stalled in the church. And the writer has observed this stalling of maturity, and he desires that he would grab their attention so that they would be stalled no more. He has seen that they are unwilling to to work out the implications of the news that they have received to do something about what has been given to them. And he knows that whether it's persecution or circumstantial difficulties or just the distracting effects of the culture around them, they have stalled to grow and he is eager for them to get moving in pursuing maturity because he knows, and this is our main point this morning, That coming to know the exalted Christ, it must, it must fuel us for a diligent pursuit of maturity. Coming to know Jesus truly, it must fuel us for a diligent pursuit of maturity. We're going to unpack this main point in in three sections, our outline this morning, if you're taking notes. Uh, We're going to look at the argument that the author gives. We're going to look at the diagnosis that he examines, and then the prescription that he gives for these readers and by God's divine preservation for us this morning. Now, before we start to unpack this, I I have confession to make. Uh, As I read this text Uh, and began to think about preparing this text to preach to you, uh, I found it rather difficult. One, I wasn't wasn't super encouraged to have to get up here this morning and and basically tell you that you're too immature to learn much more about what he wants to teach. Uh, That wasn't an exciting prospect for me. That was one, and then second... Um, As I considered this congregation, who I dearly love, and your posture 
towards the Word of God, uh, what comes to mind at first is not a people that are, are dull to receive God's Word and apply it to their lives by God's grace. Uh, this church, by God's grace, is a church that, that loves to lean into God's Word and to respond to God's Word. And it's one of the, the great pleasures that I have and my brothers who serve as your pastors get. We get a people who are ready to receive what God, God's Word has for them. But as I, I continued to wrestle with that and wrestle with it myself, I began to realize that this warning um, is not one that we can just toss away and saying, oh, that was for the church back then and not for us now. Any warning of Scripture tossed away as not for us uh, is to be dull of hearing. For us to, to exemplify what this text is aiming to get at, we should lean in and ask ourselves the very question, well, um, am I at times dull of hearing? And what must I do about it if I see that and observe that in my own life? And so I believe that God intends for this text to do work in our hearts and our minds this morning that we would be a people who are coming more and more to see and to know the exalted Christ and that we would leave here this morning fueled to the diligent pursuit of maturity through that. So... Let's examine the argument, and to do that, let's kind of look at where the author has taken us up until this point. So far in this letter, the author, uh, he continues to, uh, to unfold the marvelous mysteries of Jesus, the Christ, the one who is better than all others. He is again and again wanting to exalt Christ, the title of our preaching series, and as he does that, he continues to find it necessary to weave through that uh, encouragements and proddings and warnings uh, that we would be, that they would be a people to receive this news of the exalted Christ. So he has said things like, uh, you must pay much closer attention. You must consider Jesus. Uh, do not forget to hold fast to confidence. You must take care to watch out for unbelief. Please, please beware of hardness of heart. Friends, you must strive to enter the rest that God has for you. And, and do not neglect holding fast to the confession that you first believed. Throughout all of the exposition of lifting Christ up, he continues again and again to go, are you with me? Are you with me? Work at it. Strive at it. Pay close attention. Beware of hard-heartedness and of dull hearing. He's eager to point to the wondrous mysteries of Christ and for five chapters, he has been digging into and unpacking this wondrous Jesus, but through it all, continuing to exhort, to seek to encourage these believers. Because, 
he continues to have this one question rising to the surface again and again. Are they prepared to receive it? It keeps coming up to him. Are they, as he writes, are they prepared to receive the news of the exalted Christ? If we think back to chapters 3 and 4, the bulk of those chapters were a warning for the people to not be like the wilderness generation. The generation of, of the Israelites who were led by God into the wilderness, taking them to the promised land. And this author warns the current generation to not be like those who heard and rebelled. Who, who received the message but took no care to listen and obey it. And as a result, they fell away from the living God and did not enter his rest. Throughout this warning, the author ties together hearing, believing, and obeying. These things make up the essence of what, what biblical hearing really is. And he doesn't want his audience, and therefore I believe God doesn't want us to be those who merely listen but do not believe and obey what we receive. Because this is what happened to the wilderness generation. The end of chapter 3, he says, uh, See, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Not because they didn't receive the message, but because they didn't believe and obey what they received. And so the author finds it necessary to warn them about their current state and where it could lead. He wants to encourage these Christians. And throughout chapter 6, he will encourage them. He is desirous, as he says later in chapter 6, that they would have the full assurance of hope. But before he can give them that, he must warn them and diagnose their current state. He believes that they have become dull of hearing. So the argument at this point, he wants to tell them much more about the exalted Christ. He began uh, in the middle of chapter 5 to talk about Christ's high priestly role in the order of Melchizedek, and he wants to keep talking about that, but he feels this rising question, can they receive it? Are they ready? And so he pauses and takes this parenthesis to tell them to not be dull of hearing, to not be immature, lest they not receive the word, believe and obey, and fall away. And so he gives them this diagnosis. The teaching about the superiority of Christ's high priesthood, it's not, it's not that it's too deep and complicated. It's not that the church that he's writing to is uh, intellectually inferior. He's not saying they're too dumb. Uh, he's not saying that He's not a good enough teacher to explain these things when he says they are hard to explain. The reason that they're hard to explain, he says at the end of verse 11, is because they are dull of hearing. 
So we need to ask, okay, what, what does that mean? What does it mean? If this is the diagnosis that has him all along telling them to be careful, to strive, to not harden their hearts, and then he says, because of your dull of hearing. This is the diagnosis of their situation. They are dull of hearing. He's saying they have become lazy listeners. That word dull uh, is the same word that he uses further on in chapter 6 in verse 12, where he says, um, so that you, w- you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of, of those who through faith and patience inherit it. He's saying, uh, do not be sluggish in your hearing. This is a continuing of the warning. To be dull in hearing is to be a lazy listener. The church was suffering from the sickness of dull hearing. And the danger of that sickness will lead them to disobedience, to rebellion, and to falling away and not entering the rest that God has for them. Lazy listening is not a small problem. It is a dangerous situation. He does not want them to be sluggish in their listening. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, says this, commenting on this verse. The problem isn't the reader's lack of intelligence, nor is it even the case that the subject is intellectually stretching. The entire problem lies in the spiritual disinclination of the readers. So here's the question for us this morning. What is my inclination to listen to the word of God? What is my posture towards God's word? Is it an inclination to lean into listen that I may believe and obey? Or is it just news that I stick in my pocket and maybe I'll consider later? This is the warning for these listeners. I believe it's the warning for us this morning that we should examine our own hearts and our minds and ask ourselves, do I find in myself a spiritual disinclination to hear the word of God? Sluggish hearing is not taking seriously the word of God as a means to nurture faith that leads to fruitful obedience. Look a little bit above our text back in chapter 4 in verse 12. There we hear that oft quoted phrase, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God... It means to serve our souls in our striving to enter the rest that God has for us that comes through faith. The Word of God is what? The author says it is living and active. It means to to nurture and nourish faith that we would take it and then be equipped to discern and obey what it says. 
The readers in the original audience, they have grown dull to that activity of the Word of God. They have become sluggish to that living and active work of the Word. They have become lazy with the Word of God, seeking to take it in and have it do a work in their lives. They were unwilling to lay hold of the Word and allow it to be living and active and to bring transformation that leads to maturity. So as I study this text and as you hear it this morning, we should ask, is that me? Do I find in myself at times a lazy, sluggish disinclination to the living and active work of the Word in my life? Do I eagerly pursue that kind of work in my life that God's Word seeks to do? This leads to spiritual immaturity. This is what the illustration brings us in verses 12 to 13. He says, For though at this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. See, the problem is not a diet of milk. Milk for babies is essential for their growth, right? It's what babies need to grow. It provides the nutrients necessary. The problem is pointed out in this illustration by the phrase, by this time. Verse 12. By this time. The author is pointing out that they are continuing to act like spiritual babies, when by this time they ought to have grown up and matured, no longer acting like children. They, they should be further along in their maturing. Milk is for babies. It is necessary for them to grow, but it's for a time. And then they must grow up and mature and take on a different diet. So what, so what is uh, this milk? The basic principles of the oracles of God is what our author calls it. The actual words there in the original language are saying like the, the basic elements, the, the building blocks. He's, he's, he's saying uh, they're the ABCs of faith. The ABCs of the Christian Life, the basic elements that make up our understanding of God, of ourselves, of the universe, of eternity. They're the building blocks, the things that we take in at first that allow us to understand who God is and the world around us that we then build upon. They bring light and understanding to us. We, we need the ABCs to go on in our pursuit of knowledge and understanding. We can read a book that explains much more complicated ideas of the world, of things around us. But as we read that book that unpacks complex ideas, we look at it and we go, oh, all these complex ideas are built upon the ABCs. Without the ABCs, we can't have a book in which to understand more complex things. So he he wants to point out that they are still 
singing the alphabet song when they should be reading and digesting and growing in their understanding. Now, why, why has this happened to them? I think it's because of dangerous distractions. Like these first century believers, we ourselves are constantly tempted by the world around us to offer things that we think will satisfy us. We're constantly tempted. This is the work, the schemes of the world, of our flesh, of Satan. They're not primarily things to harm us. On the surface of it, Satan is not primarily doing works to bring us apparent harm. He's bringing things before us in conjunction with the world and with our own flesh to distract us with simple pleasures, to, to dull our eyes and our ears with, with things that bring us simple pleasures, to distract us. This is why Peter in his letter writes to those believers to prepare their minds for action and be sober-minded. There are two, I believe that there are two uh, huge idols in our culture that we are tempted to lay hold of. Two categories of idols that bring about dull hearing. The first one is entertainment. We are a people in a culture that celebrate and love to be entertained. We love and, and feel uh, it is, it is our, our duty and it is our right to be entertained. To have a day filled with things that will please us, to entertain us, to bring joy to us. And so we are, are uniquely attracted to anything that will bring that level of pleasure in entertainment. And because we are so drawn to that, we are uniquely tempted to be dulled to the effects that that can have on our souls. How easy is it for you to let 30, 40, an hour go by, not realizing that you have endlessly scrolled to be entertained? How easy for us to just sit on the couch and let that TV entertain us for hours on end and to miss the dulling effect that that has on our minds and our hearts to slow us and stall us from the eager, diligent pursuit of maturity. We love to be entertained. And the second large category, which tempts us, I believe, is the idol of comfort. We love to be comfortable. We seek to be comfortable. We make efforts to be comfortable. We avoid being uncomfortable. And we recognize that biblical hearing, which is receiving truth 
believing and obeying is not always comfortable. It requires us at times to step into uncomfortable situations, circumstances, and decisions. And so, we kind of take that, put it in our pocket. I'll consider that later. Because of the idol of comfort, we can be dull to truly hear the word of God. And so, this is the diagnosis of these people. He continues to have to exhort them because they have become dull of hearing. They are lazy listeners. And we are examining our own hearts and our minds, I believe, by the Spirit this morning to look at ourselves and say, am I a lazy listener with the Word of God? How might I change? And so the author uh, gives us the prescription for the diagnosis. He continues on. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, what do those who are dull of hearing, those who are immature, what do they need to mature? The argument here is that they need milk. They need milk to grow into maturity. The author is not saying that milk is unhelpful. He's saying that milk is necessary to grow in maturity and prepare us for solid food that continues to nourish and feed us as we mature. We do not leave behind the ABCs in order to mature. If you have an, an infant, a baby, and that baby is, is struggling to keep down the milk that it needs, it has some sort of reflux condition, uh, the answer to help that baby is not a steak. The answer is to do all that we can to help that baby digest the milk it needs. So, if we find ourselves, we're examining our own hearts and saying, I think I see in myself a, a bit of lazy listening, a bit of dull hearing, a bit of sluggishness, the answer is not to I need steak. I need to steak. I need to think more uh, about the difficult, deep doctrines of the Word of God. The answer is I need to digest the ABCs of faith that I would believe and obey. That they would not just be uh, things that I know mentally, but things that I live by wholly. What this verse is saying is that if you want to become mature and understand and appreciate the more solid teachings of the word, then the rich, nutritional, precious milk of God's gospel promises must transform your moral senses, your spiritual mind, so that you have discernment to understand what is good and evil. 
The remedy for dull hearing is an applied understanding of the milk of God's word. Peter says in his letter, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the idea here is that the diagnosis and the prescription, they go together, right? We give a prescription for a particular diagnosis. If you struggle to understand the deep teachings of the Bible, it is an internal discerning problem because we have failed to let it work over us and be applied in our lives. Because here's the reality. Basic truths are not unprofound. The basic truths of God's word are profound to transform us and to change us. The precious milk of God's word is meant to nourish and grow faith. So what what does this actually look like? What does it look like to hear, believe, and obey? The marks of of real hearing that leads to maturity. Well, it looks like this. When, when I'm tempted in my life through circumstances to doubt God's provision for me, will, will I be taken care of? Is there enough? Maybe I'm struggling in a financial situation and I'm looking at all the bills and I'm, they're stacking up and in that moment I'm tempted to go, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it or God's going to provide. And then I hear the Spirit stir God's word in me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I say, do I believe that? Do I believe that that's true, that he is my shepherd and I shall not want? I want to believe that. And so I believe it and I will trust in that and lean on him in the midst of a circumstance where I might be tempted to waver, but no, he is my shepherd and I shall not want. I trust in that. Or maybe you're, you're tempted with lust. Maybe that idea gets to play in your mind and you think, oh, maybe that will serve my soul. Maybe that will bring me joy if I just go a little further in that. You hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And you take that and you go, oh, I'm not sticking that in my pocket. I want to see God, oh God, make me pure in heart and cast this thought far from me. I want to see God who is beauty and purity in its full and perfection. Let me have that instead of that temptation. Get it far from me. And I hear your word and I believe it and then I obey. And I apply it to me. Maybe, maybe you're tempted towards frustration. That would lead to anger because the circumstances of life seem to weigh and to rub you the wrong way again and again. And you just, I just feel, it just feels good to get so frustrated and to let that spill over into anger. And you hear James say, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And you take that and you go, oh, I want the righteousness of God in my life. I want Christ reflected in and through me to others that I might be seen as one who follows him in righteousness. And so... Lord, keep me from anger. Let me know your peace. Let that be applied to my life. Maybe you're tempted at times because you have failed again and again, and you think, I don't know if God can forgive me again. Too many times have I done this. He can't be that forgiving. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you take that verse like a sweet bomb to the soul and say, I don't know how, but he forgives me again and loves me because 
of Jesus and his work for me. And you believe it, and you obey. And as you take those ABCs, and you believe them, and you obey them, what you find is that God produces in you the fruit of maturity. The fruit of maturity. This drinking in of the nourishing milk of the word, it, it flexes the muscle of faith so that faith grows and we mature. We must become proficient in the basic principles of our faith, which means we must pursue understanding, and that happens as we do it by constant practice, as the author says in verse 14. We have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to do what? To distinguish good from evil. Constant practice. So here's the question. What do you do with the word? What do you do with it? Do you put it in your pocket or do you take hold of it? And by God's grace and the work of the Spirit say, I will believe this and I will apply this by constant practice. We must take it in. Think about this, the analogy that it gives us. When does food Food is meant to nourish our bodies. When does food nourish the body? Does it nourish the body when it is cooked? When it is plated? When it is served? When it is Instagrammed? (laughs) When does food nourish our bodies? When it is chewed and digested. What do you do with the word? What do you do with God's word? If we want our souls to be nourished and filled and our muscle of faith to build, we must chew and digest God's word. We must consider it. We must study it. We must meditate on it. We must apply it to our lives. We must be like in Psalm 1, that tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, because it meditates on the word of God day and night. We must not let go until this word does a work in my life. These are not words to be stuffed in our pocket for another day. These are words to transform us, to be made more and more like Jesus Christ. Through obedience, we grow in maturity. And through that maturity, we're able to take on more solid food and become more obedient. We feed our souls the precious promises of God's word and experience more and more fruit of faith. And our senses become more and more sensitive to the leading of truth. John Owen comments on this verse and says it this way. When our spiritual senses are exercised by reason of constant use, they are in a readiness to receive, embrace, and improve what is tender to them. Without it, we shall be dull and slow of hearing. Maturity comes through digestion. Growth comes through nourishment. And all this, the fuel of this diligent pursuit, is a deeper knowledge of Christ. 
This letter is 13 chapters of an argument and an exposition and examples and warnings and encouragements that we as a church are studying through. And I believe that if we pressed the original author of this letter of 13 chapters and asked him to boil it all down into one sentence, I think he would say, I have three words for you. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That is the argument that he gives through this whole letter. Jesus is better. And when we position ourselves to not be lazy listeners, but eager hearers ready to receive the word and to dig into the word for it to be applied to our lives in better understanding and responsive obedience, what we find in our lives is Jesus is better. We find the fruit of faith gives us eyes to see that again and again and again, that Jesus is better. And we begin to delight in this word because in it we discover more and more of the beauty and the wonder of this exalted Christ. And we realize that coming to know the exalted Christ, it must fuel us for a diligent pursuit of maturity. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for its clarity and at times its exposing, that it is living and active and it, it means to cut to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so we pray that your word would do that that we would allow it to cut to our hearts, to expose where we need to change, to bring grace to us, that we would not let your word be stuffed in our pockets for another day, but that it would do work in our lives. Would you help us to respond by your spirit, by your grace, by your kindness and mercy? Make us know the fruit of faith in our lives and the joy of seeing Jesus more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.